Let's turn with me um, in the book of Exodus, chapter 15. If you're visiting with us today, we've printed the, uh, the text for you, uh, or part of the text for you, on uh, page 8 of your worship guide. Um, if you've got your Bibles, I really encourage you to keep them open, because we're going to be looking at Exodus 15, 16, and 17 today. But for space's sake, we just printed Exodus 15. Exodus 15, chapter 15, starting in verse 22. This is God's word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you. That I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. You may be seated. Let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, open our eyes to see the glory of your wondrous works. Give us a love for you. Meet us in our trial today. Mostly, this is what we want to see, that it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And so illumine your word to see the glory of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're picking up the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us today, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, it's our pattern here at Zion to work our way through books of the Bible or substantive passages of the Bible, believing that this is the way that God has given us his word. And so we want to study his word. And we are picking up here in Exodus chapter 15, right after God had safely brought Israel out of the Red Sea. He had he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt through judgment and bringing uh, plagues on Egypt and his people safely going through. And then with a strong arm, he had saved them, delivered them from their enemies. And Israel, you'll remember, if you remember a month ago when we left off, Israel had just sang this glorious song of triumph to the Lord. God had, had saved them and they were singing. They had on a spiritual high. But God is now going to lead them into the wilderness. And we'll see that Israel goes from singing triumphantly about the Lord's great salvation to grumbling in unbelief and doubt. And I bet that is more often our experience than we would like to admit. Worship has rebuilt your faith. You leave here with a sense of hope because God's hand is gracious and strong. Then only to find yourself waking up on Monday morning to new challenges at work or new struggles in your marriage. And the sense of triumph and hope turns quickly to despair. 
And if we're really honest, that usually happens on Sunday afternoon. Because contentment is elusive. I mean, there are remnants of dissatisfaction in our hearts that just creep up often because we live in a world that's broken by sin and we are still a people terribly broken by sin with much sin and unbelief in our hearts. Holding on to contentment is so difficult. We long for satisfaction. Our hearts crave it. We are made to be satisfied. So much of our life gets taken away from us and we feel the emptiness of our souls and contentment and the search for satisfaction just seems to fall right out of our hands. We'll sing, it is enough that Jesus died. We'll hear him say, he will graciously give us all things because he has given us his son and yet our hearts quickly lose hope. The Apostle Paul says he had to learn the secret of contentment. It was there. It was to be gained. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Right? In any and every circumstance, it's what we had heard in our call to confession. Don't give me poverty or riches, because if you give me riches, I'll forget you. If you give me poverty, I'll hate you. Somewhere in between, I'll find contentment. If you're near to me, and here's Paul, I learned in any and every circumstance the secret of place facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. But he had to learn it. Did you catch that? Contentment is learned. That's the hard side of what is being taught here. God only teaches the secret of contentment in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, God heightens our hunger to heighten our desire for satisfaction. The journey to contentment necessarily goes through the valley of dissatisfaction. Because the Lord loves his people. He loves his people so much that he is committed to training our desires so that we learn to depend on him solely for sustenance in life. To depend on him as the Lord, our healer, to depend on him as the Lord, our protector, means that he's got to heighten our sense of dissatisfaction before those things will ever become a life-changing soul satisfying reality in our lives. And here is where we have to, for UCS Lewis studiers, have to bring in that great quote from The Weight of Glory, where he, he, he says it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak, and he compares us. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy being offered to us. In Christ, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too far too easily pleased. And so God, as a loving father, will not let us be satisfied by anything less than the greatest gift that he can give us, himself. Contentment's directly to proportional to this. How deeply you have grasped God's love for you. As a caring, saving, providing father. See, the journey in the wilderness is, is God's answer to Augustine's prayer when he prayed, 
Lord, my heart is restless until it rests in you. And so Israel is on a journey from slavery to freedom. They had started this journey long ago as slaves in Egypt were picking up here after the Red Sea. He had shown his strong arm. He had freed them. But that's not the end of the story. Freedom from slavery is not the end of the story. He had promised them. He had freed them with this promise. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. It's not enough for you not just to be slaves anymore. You've got to enjoy a place where I will dwell with you forever. A lush land flowing with milk and honey. A land of freedom from enemies. A land where they will dwell in peace forever. Flourish. And later the Bible tells us this is the journey of the Christian life. Through the work of Jesus on the cross, he has freed us from slavery to sin. Imprisonment to God's wrath. And the Christian is now a new person on a new journey to a new home in the new heavens and new earth. Christianity is not about getting out of jail. It's about God bringing us into his home where we'll dwell with him in no more sickness or sorrow or pain or war anymore. So Israel's story is a foretaste. It's a microcosm of what God has done for his people in Christ because the Christian's been grafted into Israel's story. This is our story, but we need to remember that Israel didn't go straight into the promised land. God had plans for them to shape them And he would only shape them in the wilderness. They were out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. They needed to go through the wilderness so they could learn to trust and love the Lord by learning that he really does love them. So we're going to follow Israel today from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. We're going to cover these three chapters. They are journeying over a couple months period of time from the Red Sea, where they had seen Egypt destroyed by the flood of God's wrath, and to Sinai, where they're going to receive God's law and learn to love Him as a new and redeemed people. They're going to travel down the west coast of the Sinai Peninsula. It's really harsh, barren land. If you have time today, open up Google Maps and and look at the pictures of the Sinai Peninsula. It's desert country with rough mountains. There are few places in the world that are as barren and difficult as the Sinai Peninsula. And God is purposely taking his people there, not by accident, but by love. Israel's needs were tremendous in the wilderness. Remember that this is a nation of over 2 million people that God had redeemed. He had built the nation in slavery in Egypt from 70 that went into the land over 400 years later, over 2 million people. But a, a country that size, a people that size are in desperate need of two things in abundant supply, water and vegetation. They're carrying their cattle and their sheep with them as well. And because of their size, they're moving really slowly. And so we're told in 15 that they moved from the Red Sea to their first stop in three days and they had not found any water. They're dying of thirst, literally. And they come to Marah and they find there, oh, the water is overflowing. It's a, 
It's an oasis. And they taste the water. And their thirst is not quenched, but heightened. Because the water is bitter. Their swollen tongues, their parched thirst, find no relief. This water is undrinkable. And then God gives Moses a log. Nothing special about the log except that it comes from the hand of the Lord. And he throws it in the water. And the bitter water becomes sweet, pleasant by the hand of the Lord. That's the pattern that God works in with his people. From bitter to sweet, from death to life. In the midst of the wilderness, he heightens the need and then provides. And he's done this to make it clear to them. He's teaching them two things. I want to teach you obedience and you'll never learn it unless you go through the wilderness. And I also want to teach you this. I am the Lord, your healer. Do you see the bitter water? I've made it sweet for you because that's who I am. I am the Lord, your healer. The same waters that at one time had crushed the Egyptians. Now, down the road, water turns sweet to God's people because he is the healer of his people. But look, when we're in the wilderness, this is the first thing that we forget. That God is here and that in Christ he's up to good things. Because there's a phrase that gets repeated throughout these three chapters, and it's this. God was testing his people. Verse 25 of chapter 15 at Merah, there he tested them. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in your eyes and give ears to his commandments and in all his statutes to stop Slater on their journey. They are in a land that is so barren. It's called the wilderness of sin. And again, God's presence and his Provision are there to test Israel. Later on in Rephidim, again, he tells them, I'm testing you. In fact, eight times before they end up in the promised land, they go through these periods where God is saying, I'm testing you in the wilderness. Now, what does God mean when he's testing his people? We use test different ways. We use that word different ways. Unfortunately, what comes to mind most of the time is a test to improve our standing. So you build a record for yourself. So I'm going to take a test at school, and the reason I'm taking that test is so I can get a better grade and and have a better record for myself to get me future rewards, whether it's in college or a great job down the way. So testing, in that sense, is to gain merit or worth. But that's not the way God's using it. There's another way that we use test, that word We use it to reveal and refine. So you've probably given someone a large currency, maybe a $50 bill, and they've pulled out their marker and and swiped across it. What they're doing is they're testing it. They're testing it to reveal hidden things, a hidden reality that you could not normally see, or a precious metal is tested by putting it through the fire with the goal of refining it so you can find its hidden qualities and then refining it so that it gains greater purity only that which is tested the only things we test are the things that are truly valuable well this is what God's doing to Israel in the wilderness he is revealing and refining them in the wilderness because he loves them know then in your heart Deuteronomy 8 he's recounting this this journey here 
in Deuteronomy 8, as Israel is at Mount Sinai getting ready to depart, he's recounting for them all that he's done. And he says of them, look, I carried you like a father carries his young son. I carried you in the wilderness, and this is what I was doing. Know then that in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you to do good to you. Through the trial, he's bringing out what's hidden in their hearts. He's taking them into the wilderness to expose to them what is really there. Things that God knew, they did not. This is the journey of the Christian life oftentimes. When, all the time, actually. The older you get in Christ, the more you realize there are hidden corruptions in my heart. I had no idea that were there. That's true. God did when he took you. He knew what he was getting into, but he also knew the plan, the journey he was going to take you on were to hidden Reveal those hidden things. And so God's recounting. You'll remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And the way he tests has a rhythm to it. He tests in the wilderness, that's the context, but he tests in the wilderness by doing two things. He leads us into the trial and then provides for us there all the time. And each of these testing episodes comes in the midst of God's lavish provision. He heightens it at Marah, but then provides for them. He's going to take them into the wilderness of sin and then lavishly provide for them. That's the pattern of the trial. The context is the wilderness. The pattern is provision. He's testing them. Will you trust me? Will you trust me by obeying my commands? Will you trust me to provide for you? Will you trust my love for you? Will you trust my care for you? Well, God's people have a consistent response. When backed up against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit, they grumble and accuse Moses of malice. And by grumbling here, they don't mean like, I don't like my vegetables. They mean like, what are you doing to me? Think rebellion. When they're here at Merah, the water's undrinkable. They grumble again against Moses. What shall we drink? What are you doing to us? In the wilderness of sin, their grumbling gets even worse. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then their final stop at Rephidim, now at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they again are desperate and thirsty and they grumble against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The unbelief takes the form of prideful rebellion. And they're grumbling because they're accusing God of malice towards them. And God is testing them by revealing their unbelief. He's proven his faithful love with plagues of judgment against Egypt. And and Israel went out free. He'd fought their battles for them and swallowed up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He had turned, at this point, bitter water sweet. His love for his people had been tested and proven. But in our testing, he's exposing deep roots of unbelief. And this is what the wilderness exposes, this hard reality. We don't trust God 
We don't trust his love as deep and wide as his love actually is for us. And so look what God does. This is our unbelief is exposed. And when our unbelief is exposed, we have to remember the deep provisions of the Lord always. This is the pattern. Testing, provision. The context is the wilderness. So after testing them at Merah, the Lord takes them on the next stop, further down the Sinai Peninsula, along the Red Sea, the western shores of the Sinai Peninsula, and they take them to an oasis at Elim. He gives them a reprieve. And Moses is very clear. Elim has 12 springs of water and lushly grows 70 palm trees. It's a resort setting. And here's the pattern. The context is the wilderness, but God frequently gives us breaks in the wilderness. He will lead you into seasons of ease and relief. Things won't be as bad as they currently are or as they were. Jesus, the good shepherd, from our call to worship, leads us to green pastures and still waters. But God not only provides relief from the wilderness, the harder thing for us to get is the ways he provides relief in the wilderness. So Israel has a next stop on their journey. The Lord leads them from the resort of Elim back into the wilderness and now to the wilderness of sin. Egypt was out of Israel for a couple months now, or Israel was out of Egypt for a couple months now. Just a couple months. This is a fresh memory. But already they had forgotten God's love and strong arms, so they grumble again. They would rather have died in Egypt because there they had meat pots and bread to the full as they were ruthlessly being enslaved by Egypt. They forget the imprisonment and only remember the meat pots. And if you have your Bible, look at 16, verse 7. This is God. This is just an amazing response to their rebellion. They're here in the wilderness of sin. The, in the, going into the rough mountains of Sinai, and this is verse 7, and in the morning, this is God says, here's my response to your grumbling rebellion, your unbelief. You shall see the glory of the Lord. He doesn't withdraw from his people. I'm going to show you myself. Why? Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us, Moses says. And when Moses said this, he said, When the Lord gives you in the me- evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to your full, it is because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It's such an amazingly gracious thing. God is going to provide them bread to the full because he hears their unbelief. He's faithful even when we are not. Their testing might reveal rebellious hearts, but God in his compassion reacts to their weakness in love and tenderness. And he tells Moses to let Israel know, this is what I'm going to do. In my glory, I'm going to show up so you'll see that this is from my hand. You're going to get quail at night. Doesn't seem like it's every night, but quail at night. 
and bread-like substance called manna in the morning. Each morning, a heavy dew is going to set over the land. And when the sun rises and the dew lifts, there's going to be a flaky, white-like substance on the ground. It's going to be sweet, like honey. And it has this amazing ability to satisfy just enough. Each person is to gather an omer, which is like a two-liter Coke. Think That's about how much they're gathering. And the omer will be enough to satisfy the hunger of a giant warrior as well as a little child. If they gather more than an omer, they'll test the Lord and the, the manna will have worms and rot in the morning, except in the midst of this, God is going to give them a day of rest every week. On the Sabbath day, they're not to gather anything. The sixth day, they're to gather two days worth of food. And on the, manna, on the Sabbath morning, the manna won't rot. Why? Because God is their provider. You imagine a people who had been burdened under the oppression of slavery day after day after day. And God's saying to them, you get a day off. One day out of the week, I will provide for you. I'll give you two days worth of labor, of sustenance from one day's worth of labor. This is the type of God that he is. His grace always prevails. He'll never leave his people. He always provides in the wilderness. But look, this type of providing presence is actually very costly to God. He will lovingly respond to our grumbling because before this is the story of the Christian life, this is the story of Jesus' life. God led him into the wilderness too. For 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness being tested by Satan without food and water. And when Satan tempted him to unbelief and rebellion to take care of his great need all by himself, Jesus responded, man should not live by bread alone. I'll trust my father to see he provide for me as he sees fit. I will not grumble and accuse, for I know that God's purposes are good. Right? So if you belong to Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus becomes our faithfulness. This is why God can respond to their grumbling, because Jesus fulfilled the record for them. He was faithful. God deals with his people because of what Christ has earned, not what the wilderness reveals in us. You hang your hat on that truth for the rest of your life. God may test you, but what you find is no comparison to what Christ has earned. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So finally, as we leave the desert of sin, we're now venturing into the heartland of the Sinai Peninsula, and they are camped now at Rephidim. They're eating manna in the morning, quail at night. But this is hard. I mean, this is, they've gone from the sand of the western coast of the Sinai Peninsula now into the rocky, treacherous, mountainous area of Sinai. Don't think Smoky Mountains or even Rocky Mountains. This is destitute. This is not a place you even want to visit. It's so destitute and rugged. And the people are thirsty Again, and they grumble 
Again, this time they're ready to stone Moses. They're not, this is not a contented people. And their unbelief is exposed. They're in rebellion. Why did you bring us up here to kill us? And so Moses, at this point, even reaches his end and begins grumbling himself against the Lord in frustration. What shall we do with this people? And again, God in his graciousness provides. He commands Moses to take out his staff, strike the rock, and water springs forth. In the midst of barren land, there is lush provision again. This is the mountain now. We've circled all the way back around from our beginning of Exodus. This is the mountain now where Moses saw the Lord in the burning bush. It's called the mountain of the Lord. The foot of Mount Sinai. It's the mountain where God would descend in a glory cloud and talk to his people in the coming chapters. This is his temporary home. And the striking of the mountain of God with Moses' staff is such a vivid picture. Because Moses' staff is a weapon. He had struck the Egyptians with the plagues with that weapon. He had drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea with that weapon. In the next part, at the end of 16, or at the end of 17, he raises his hands with that weapon and takes out the Amalekites who are seeking to destroy Israel. By this weapon, God's enemies are defeated. And so when God tells Moses to take up this weapon of judgment and strike my mountain, and then the waters of refreshment will come to his people. And as Chris reminded us as we sang Rock of Ages from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is what Paul says. That rock was Christ. God's foreshadowing the cross. By God's design, Christ is struck by the weapon of God's wrath and he is destroyed and then raised to reign with power and now from him flow all of the waters of spiritual nourishment. And so Jesus really can promise, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Because God struck him so that flowing from him are the lush waters of refreshment. You see, the lens through which we view our circumstances always determines our response to our circumstances. After years of counseling, Dan Allender, as a counselor, said, this this is my observation. The greatest obstacle to life is the conviction that God is out to damage and destroy me. Well, only in the wilderness does that conviction get transformed to a different conviction. It's this, God loves me with an everlasting love. God is my healer. God is my refuge. God is my provider. God is not cruel. He won't give us mud pies in the slum. He gives us in Christ the vacation at the beach and then says, I'm gonna train you so that you're only satisfied by that. He's got to teach us this. It has to be learned. Contentment's possible. 
but it's only possible when you've learned this lesson. Christ is the only one big enough to satisfy my every desire. Contentment directly proportional to this. How deeply you grasp God's deep love for you. In the wilderness, we might lose everything, but we gain the greatest treasure. A deep sense of the abiding, never-ending, soul-satisfying love of Christ. With that, you will never hunger or thirst again. Let's pray. Father, your, your leading is hard, and all of us confess this. Our hearts are hard too, and so afflict us so that we could be healed. Break us so that you could mend us. Make us suffer so that we could be like Jesus. Make us know, make this world so deeply unsatisfying that your love for us in Christ the rock who is struck would set our hearts with joy. Don't let us be satisfied by anything less than your love in Christ. We tremble as we pray this, but we pray it, beg you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.